That's good. Uh, so we're, we're towards the end of the book. I'm going to try and wrap it up in the next few weeks so that we can move into something else in the summer, uh, something a little less challenging and complicated than, than Revelation. Um, so, but we've got uh, chapter 19 today, which really starts the, the end of, of the book. Um, you know, the last things we had seen were descriptions of Babylon and uh, chapter 18 we didn't read through, but it's this kind of song that's um, lamenting the fall of Babylon or kind of a taunt in a sense, right? It's, it's the people in Babylon that are lamenting that it's falling. But as we're going to see at the beginning of chapter 19, this is something for, for God's faithful people to celebrate. Um, and yet, you know, it's, it's interesting here, right? We have this song talking about Babylon falling, which is, again, a symbol in their time for the Roman Empire, but can be a symbol that includes any evil empire. Uh, they're saying it's fallen, even though it hasn't happened yet, right? So it's a sense of, well, in this moment, it still seems like it has all the power, and yet we know God is going to do this, and so we can, we can even celebrate now. Um, but as we're getting into these final visions here from chapter 19 to 22, uh, I want to think a little bit about how we read those and how we try and fit them together or don't. Right? Our tendency, because this is the way stories work, as when we typically write them, is a logical, linear, literal pro progression, right? One event follows another event. And yet, uh, as we tried to see through this book, uh, Revelation is an apocalypse. It's a different sort of genre that we don't really use today. And so it works a little bit differently from just, you know, a narrative type of story. And so I think we need to, you know, assume it, it may not always work that way, right? It may not be this event follows that event. Uh, and that's, uh, it's just a misreading of, of the genre. And it's kind of our modern perspective that we're importing onto this, this old ancient book. Uh, one of the reasons that I think that's uh, important or a, a clue that we should read this, you know, the final judgment here, that way is because we've already seen multiple descriptions of what seems like a final judgment with the sixth seal, the seventh trumpet, the two harvests in chapter 14, the seventh bowl in chapter 16. All those seemed like that was the end, right? So it's it's coming at the same thing from a different perspective, almost like a kaleidoscope, um, rather than trying to logically find a, a consistent uh, story through here. Even, you know, take, for example, what happens to the kings and the nations in chapters 19 to 22? Uh, in chapter 19, 21, they're killed. And then in verse chapter 20, verse 8, they're deceived. And then after that, they're thrown into the lake of fire in verse 15. But then in chapter 21, 24, they bring their glory into New Jerusalem. And then 22, 2, they're healed. Right? So that's a, it doesn't seem to make sense uh, just logically following for the one thing to follow another. Right? They, the first thing that's said about them is that they're killed and then more stuff happens. Usually being killed is the end. Right? So it, it's just trying to say it's saying different things about them. And we can try and fit them together. But again, we want to kind of question our, our natural tendency to just think this is a, a logically consistent chronological order. Right? We want to do it this way so that we can take it seriously and not get hung up on chronology so that we can see the theology. What is it really saying about God and what God is doing to establish his kingdom uh, to make all things new, as it'll say in, at, at the very end. And so all these things matter. We don't want to leave any of them out. Uh, but if we can get away from some of those tendencies, I think it'll actually make more sense. 
All right, any questions about that before we start looking at, at chapter 19? All right, so uh, the first part here, I just want to skim over a little bit. The first 10 verses, it's mostly this rejoicing in heaven over the fall of Babylon, right? So chapter 18 was a song from the perspective of Babylon or about it. And here we have uh, this multitude in heaven singing about its fallenness and how that's God is giving God the glory for it. God is just in doing this. Right? This is an evil empire, right? Again, if we're thinking in their time about Rome, and what it was doing to Christians, we think about some other empires or, or powerful nations through history, what they have done to faithful people. Now, that's what this is celebrating. Uh, but it does kind of lead into a question for us as we think about this. What is the appropriate way for, for Christians, for followers of the Lamb, to celebrate the defeat of evil or the defeat of an empire? Um, can we go too far celebrating that? Do, do we need to have some caution as we celebrate uh, seeing uh, evil fall? Or is that just something we should be totally happy about and, and celebrate as much as we want? What do you think? Well, I'm reminded too that uh, I think a negative, bad, mindset, especially in sports, where it's not enough mm -hmm. that I win. That they must lose. Yeah. Uh, lose horribly. That's, there's a, a kind of there's a fine line there, right? How much are we celebrating our victory? How mm -hmm. much are we celebrating well that they lost? Uh, yeah. One side sounds really great, the other side. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, uh, to take that analogy, right? Well, what did that team do, right? It's the team that's known for cheating and and un, it's very unfair. It's a little bit different to celebrate beating that team versus, you know, if you beat this team that is just underdogs and they have, you know, no talent and, and no money, it feels different to celebrate that, right? So again, yeah, in this, in this story, this is like the powerful, right? It's, it's them falling. The Christians are, there's oppressed minority and the Roman Empire is, I mean, they say they run the whole world and in some senses they're right. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the power balance matters there. Okay, what else? Yeah, and I, yeah, I remember in some of the conversations around that at the time of like, well, yeah, we want to celebrate that justice has been done when these people are responsible for atrocities. And yet you can almost, you saw some people that almost took it too far. Uh, you know, this is still somebody losing their life and, and you know, you lament that they got to that point in their life that they would do such horrible things. Uh, and yet you wanna be careful with that too. Were you gonna say something? Okay, okay, that. <laughs> it's my mother-in-law, Marilyn, if anyone hasn't, hasn't met her. Uh, so. Yeah. Right, right. So yeah, it, it's less, we want to celebrate that, that bad people, you know, suffered through all these things. And it is more about justice, right? And that's what they're celebrating here. If you go through and read it, it's look, the Babylon, Rome did all these things to us, forgot to do nothing is unjust. And so it's celebrating that God is doing something about it. 
And so again, we got to think about our perspective. We're in a very different place now for us as American Christians versus Christians in the Roman Empire. It's all very complicated, right? But we probably couldn't sing this song in the same way uh, when we see others fall. And here it is from heaven, right? This is many of those who had been martyred, killed by the Roman Empire that is celebrating this. So it's, they've got more of a personal stake in it rather than people that are just on the side, you know, uh, finding joy in, in the suffering of someone else. Uh, another little thing you see in here in verse 7, it talks about the marriage of the lamb and, and the bride. This is the image that will get picked up more. Uh, of the church as the bride of Christ. So we're going to see that in the final vision as well. And so the, it's taking the idea of a wedding day as like the restoration of all things and, and Christ coming to be fully with humanity. Um, but then along with that in verse eight, um, the fine linen that the bride is wearing, it says, is the righteous deeds of the saints. So how good the church looks on that, on that wedding day is dependent some on, on how we live and, and what we do. So this is another idea that will come up in these final visions of what is the place of judgment for, for followers, right? doesn't matter what we do, not to get in, right, or to be saved. We know that we're saved by the blood of the lamb, and yet our actions still matter. And so we're going to see that come up again in a little bit, not, not today, but next week. Uh, all right, and then finally, verse 10 is, is, ends with this kind of weird statement. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And uh, so prophecy is a term that's also used for this book. John sees himself also as a prophet. And so it's basically saying that when the, when the spirit is working in, in prophetic uh, actions and, and speech, it's about Jesus. That's where it all focuses. And so all of it leads towards him, points towards him, and it leads to worship of God. All right, let's get into uh, the first big scene here uh, with the rider on the white horse in verses 11 to 16. I think this is really one of the central visions of the book. And what you do with it really shapes, uh, it, it depends on how you understand this book functioning. So verse 11, then I saw heaven opened. And there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, wearing fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will shepherd them or rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name inscribed, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he's not named here, but we see plenty of signs to read this as Christ coming. And so this fundamental question that we're thinking about is what kind of war does Jesus wage? This, this slaughtered lamb, as we were first introduced to him back in chapter five, uh, how does he defeat evil? How does he uh, come up against his enemies? Because if we're reading this as Jesus just coming and literally slaughtering his enemies, um, well, that says something for us too, right? What we see Jesus doing is going to shape what we do, how, how God, how Christ defeats evil is going to be how we think we should take care of evil. 
And so we have to ask, what is consistent, right? We have the central image going back to chapter five of Jesus as the slaughtered lamb. Um, what's consistent with that? What's consistent with the way that Jesus lived his life and the way that he taught? You know, I, I reject the idea that Jesus was one way in his life and teaching and in his death. And then at the end, he's going to totally reverse all of that. And uh, so what is a consistent way to read this that still is about bringing justice and making things right? Uh, because that's that's how he's described here, right? Faithful and true uh, as, as a judge. Uh, early on in chapter three, Jesus was called the faithful and true witness. So he's gone from being a witness to being the judge, right? Because he's uh, had lived a faithful life and had, had spoken the truth. Now he is the one who is, uh, it's, it's appropriate for him to be that judge, right? He's not standing from afar, but he lived this out, right? Because he lived a human life. He is the true judge of, of humanity. And so you got all these symbols of him having that sort of authority, right? So he's got diadems on his head. You might, it might just say crowns. As mentioned before, the, the Greek has two different types of crowns. Uh, there's a, a one that you would win in a victory, and then there's one that symbolizes authority, and that's what these are. Uh, and he has a bunch of them, right? And again, it's um, uh, if you just were like drawing this out, some of these pic it would seem like a really funny picture, right? Because it's like he's got all these crowns stopped, stacked on top of his head, and somehow riding a horse, which I guess takes a lot of balance. Uh, right? What what is it symbolizing? Not just what would this look like, right? He has all authority is given to him. As, as he says uh, at the end of, of Matthew. And so when did he receive this authority? Uh, well, it's his, his death, resurrection, and ascension, kind of all wrapped up in some ways. There's ways in which his death on the cross is seen as him being enthroned. Uh, the resurrection is showing that he is truly Lord. And then the ascension that, uh, you know, 40 days after he, he rose again, is his ascending to uh, this place of, of authority. And so however you, you, know, you, you look at it, Jesus has this authority. Now, the part to me that's really important is verse 13. It says he has a robe that's dipped in blood. This is before the battle starts, right? He comes and he's already bloody. So where did that blood come from? I think the answer is it's his own, right? He is the slaughtered lamb. This is his own blood, right? So it's, again, reminding us of the sacrifice that he made, of laying his life down even for his enemies, which is going to shape the way that we understand him coming against these enemies here. And then it calls him the word of God, uh, which is connected to this sword from his mouth. I think that's also very important. The sword is not in his hand. It's in his mouth. Funny picture to imagine him like holding it in his teeth and, you know, slicing people down. Right. What is that saying? It's talking about what he says. Um, Christ judges as and with the word, uh, not a literal sword. Right? It's the same image from Hebrews 4 of, of the word of God being sharper than any double-edged sword. And, you know, whether Hebrews is talking about Christ or the Bible or, or somehow it's both, uh, that's, that's another discussion. But again, you see that it's this consistent image of, of the word, words can be cutting. Right? We even use that, that metaphor, that language. And I think that's what it's pointing to here, that this is really, uh, it seems like a battle scene, but it's really about judgment and Christ speaking that word of judgment uh, more than committing violence. And so he's, uh, again, I think this is something we've seen before. He's um, either ruling or shepherding the nations. You can read that word either way. 
um, but I tend to go with, with the shepherding because that fits the, the lamb metaphor. And then again, if we're thinking about this as, as speaking true judgment, that's what the, the wine press is also about in, in verse 15. Um, because what does a wine press do? It reveals the fruit. And we've seen this image used before already in chapter 14, where these grapes, they're pressed, and instead of producing juice, they produce blood. And so it's this image of, if, if that's the kind of fruit you're producing, when Christ comes, that's what's going to be revealed. And so that's, that's what it's saying here as well. He's still the lamb, and this is how he conquers. Uh, in a sense, he's already done that, right? Christ has already conquered evil through the cross, and this is carrying that out to its, its fullness. It's speaking this word of truth about evil um, and recognizing it for what it is. Um, and that, in some sense, defeats it. Uh, I mean, think about it in your own life, right? When you had somebody, like, speak the truth to you, and it felt like, man, that really hurt, or it almost feels like you were being killed. Um, why does it feel that way? Uh, why can, you know, uh, again, a true word, not somebody saying something hurtful just to be mean, but when somebody really is speaking the truth that maybe you didn't want to hear, why is that so hard? Why does that feel like being cut into. Why don't we want that? Or do we? Do we like that when someone tells us those things? Okay. Yeah, okay. So some people don't care if you point out, hey, this was this is really wrong. Okay. <laughs> what what's the big deal? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and what's the point of it, right? If this is a good friend that's doing this, hopefully they're doing that to help, right? They don't want you to hurt someone else. They want you to know so that you can maybe make better choices next time. So it's it's like surgery, right? Nobody likes to be cut into. And yet, I mean, many here have gone through this, right? You go through those surgeries and the pain that it produces because the good that might come, that will come from it, hopefully. And so again, that's that's, you know, I, I see this as a, just another way of presenting that sort of image of what Christ is doing here. Uh, and yeah, it, it really hurts and it, it's a big deal. And, and the way, you know, if this is the final judgment, uh, I feel like people aren't going to be able to hide from it, right? Right now, you know, if we try and speak the, the truth to people, well, that may not be that, that cutting to them, right? They're able to brush it off. But I get the picture here that people aren't going to be able to brush this off in the end. Um, all right, so moving on, then it's kind of picking up the same scene in chapter 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly in midheaven, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses, and the riders, flesh of all, both small, free and slave, both small and great. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against the rider on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed in its presence the signs by which he deceived those who had, get, had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were killed by the sword of the rider on the horse, the sword that came from his mouth, and all the birds were gorged with his flesh." Uh, so this is, uh, again, a pretty intense image here, and it's, I, I think we've already seen, alluded to this marriage supper of the lamb that's going to come, and so this is kind of the dark side, the dark parallel to that. 
Now, with all this that's happening, we do see that it's an equal fate, right? Great and small, uh, it doesn't matter who you were in life. If you were standing against the, the lamb, if you were deceived by this mark, um, then judgment is coming, right? So nobody gets an out just because of, of where they were. And it's unclear here. Again, this is another place where it's hard to say whether we're picking up images from before and kind of carrying that story on. Is this the same battle as Armageddon that was mentioned back in 16 uh, or not? I tend to read it as kind of a separate image because there it was between the kings of the east and the kings of the whole world, which is Roman Empire and, and you know other forces. And here it's against Christ. And even there in chapter 16, God comes in and says, hey, this is it's finished. Uh, so. Either way you take it, right? It, it, it's kind of up to how you want to read and put together these images or not. Uh, but what happens here, right? You see everybody's kind of lining up against each other, but immediately the beast is captured, right? How many battles start with the, the general of the other empire immediately being captured and defeated? So it's, again, a clue that don't expect this to be like a typical sort of battle. Uh, it's more saying something about how God is, is defeating evil. Uh, that it happens quickly, right? It's over in a moment. He's captured. And again, it's he's killing with the sword of his mouth. So this is, again, it's, it's more of a symbol of, of speaking judgment than, than just violence. And again, the beast and the false prophet are more symbols of authority than in an individual person. And so it doesn't seem like it's talking about uh, any one person that's going to be killed this way or thrown in the lake of fire. It's about these... Uh, Evil as a, as a, you know, more of a corporate entity in that sense. And Christ is the one who does it all by himself, right? It does mention uh, back in verse 14, the armies of heaven are with him, but it doesn't say anything about these armies fighting, right? It seems like it's just Christ. He comes in and he, he has this word from his mouth and that takes care of it. Uh, both the authority and the propaganda, it, it's, it's over. Um, they're there. The armies are there as witnesses, which is so often what God's faithful people are called to be, to be a witness to what Christ has done, right? to see it and to speak truthfully about it more than that we join in here. All right. So again, it's, it's the same sort of idea of, of deceit coming up against the truth. And what happens when it's at the end, truth wins out and, and the seed, the lying is defeated. And so it's laying our hearts bare before God, which again, uh, maybe still sounds pretty scary, um, but if we turn to the truth now, if we can let that word uh, cut into us and, and cut some of those things out already, then maybe don't, we don't have to worry about it. Okay, any questions about chapter 19 and, and all these images here? We're running. Well, will they be um, despised Christians in that time frame? I mean, the ones that they say are saved, they are mm. going to go to heaven and yeah, I mean, that's hard. What does it mean to be deceived by, by the beast and, and that, right? It's, yeah, and that's, that's where I think it's not up to us to make those sort of calls, you know, however you understand, right, we'll see next time the, the names written in the book of life. Um, but yeah, and Revelation can be very black and white. Either you are following the beast or you're following the lamb. And I think the reason he writes that way is he's writing to Christians, right? They're not expecting to deliver this to the Roman Empire and authorities and have them turn. It's, it's kind of speaking in these, these you know, very intense terms to show these Christians that are maybe giving in a little bit. They, they just kind of 
going along with the empire say, no, this is a big deal and you need to choose a side here for those that, that think they can kind of be on both sides. It's trying to get them to be on, on the right side, but, but yeah, and, and that's, that's where it's hard. So you make it, I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't really, Revelation doesn't seem to, to speak of it that way. It's kind of either you are a follower of the lamb or, or you're not. And, you know, yeah, we don't want to be deceived either, right? That's deceit is, is a big idea here, lying. It's about, are you listening to the lamb or are you deceived there? But what do you do with deceit? You speak the truth to it. Sure speculation. Sure. I think one reason that the writer here didn't say the Roman Empire. It wasn't because he was afraid that they were going to find him and kill him, although maybe he was, I don't know. But Sorry, to represent, you know, for example, uh, there were soldiers in the Roman army that came to John Baptist, and John Baptist didn't say, you got to get out of that Roman army. Don't you dare be a you know, soldier in the Roman army. He just said, no, you need to do what's right while you're a soldier in the Roman army. So I, I think the point here is, who's your true king? Mm -hmm. Am I serving the Roman army because it's my job? But I'm really trying to do Christ's will in that role, or is it I'm trying to get me some, just like the emperors are trying to, you know, rule the world or whatever. Uh, and I think that's the image we're trying to go for. Are you following the beast or are you following Christ? It's not, mm -hmm. oh, I'm I'm part of the Roman Empire. It's am I really following after the right things or is God yeah. really my king? Right. Yeah, it's not just the empire. That's why it's these spiritual symbols. And see, there's this dragon, this other force that's behind all of this. So when he says, yeah, we saw this in chapter 18, come out of Babylon. It doesn't just mean leave the Roman Empire, because that's impossible for pretty much everybody. But how can you live in a different way? All right. Well, I guess we're going to stop there. Uh, I didn't know if we'd get to. Oh, what? <laughs> no, I know. I know the bell now. For a while, I didn't. But now I, now I know. All right. Well, next time we'll uh, yeah just save your your handouts because I didn't know if we would get to the millennium. Another very simple uh, concept, right? It's one of those three verses, but you know hunt, you know countless ink has been spilled about what that is, and so we'll look at some possibilities for there. Just a question to think about that as we leave: Has Christ come into His kingdom right now or not? Is Christ reigning or not? And how do we understand that functioning? And I think if, if we think about that, that'll give us some clue uh, to what the millennium is all about. So we'll see you next week. Oh, yeah. Sure. You said <laughs> well, that's a, a big one to end on. Um, I mean, I don't see this speaking to that. And, and again, you know, the, the modern state of Israel is, is not the equivalent of the Jewish people, right? And so there's, it's, it's tricky when you have the overlapping of, you know, modern nation states and, and who God's people are. I mean, everyone that wrote, you know, the New Testament is mostly written by Jewish people, right? Jewish Christians. And so they were calling their own people to this. And Christ, I mean, Christ is a Jewish term that just means Messiah, anointed one. And so uh, that's what Jesus meant. He's not meant to be something separate from Judaism. He's meant to be the fulfillment of that story. Um, and so I don't know. Again, that's, I'm, I'm leaving that up to God. Um, it's not my call. 
thank goodness. Um, but yeah, and and some of that again, I know we're we're done, but some of the stand with Israel stuff comes from a particular reading of Revelation that thinks certain things have to happen in the Middle East before Jesus can come back. I think that's a misreading of how this book works because Jesus can come whenever Jesus wants, uh, and that's that's my big take. That's the way I understand him talking about it, and so we shouldn't want there to be violence in the Middle East so that Jesus can return. Right? I mean, again, that goes against the way of the Lamb. And so whenever you see those that are presenting that sort of view of the end, I think we need to question, is that consistent with the way of Christ uh, who gives his life even for his enemies? And I think it's not. So, all right. Well, that's a short answer to a giant question. Thank you. <laughs> we'll see you all next time. Thank you.